Did Jesus fulfill prophecy? The gospel certainly wanted early Christians to think that, and that argument is made today in many evangelical circles. But does it hold water? My book concludes by urging Christians that it's time for us to uh, just give up this belief because it's, it's no longer tenable, uh, it's no longer uh, legitimate in the, in the face of what we know about how the prophets uh, taught, and it's simply no longer needed. It's not something Christians need to do anymore. They don't need to persuade themselves that uh, the, the Jewish tradition uh, approves of Christian, Christian belief. Robert J. Miller talks with me today about his new book, Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. It's time for Progressive Spirit progressivespirit.net. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. The uh, sad side of this whole thing is that uh, we, we do find in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles uh, and in Christian writers you know, from the early centuries, very clear and sometimes very ugly statements about Jews who don't believe in Jesus, who refuse to see the truth that he fulfills these prophecies, etc., and uh, sort of calling down the, the anger of God on, on, on the Jews who uh, persist in what Christians call their willful unbelief. Um, and this, this is uh, quite, uh, in, I mean, in, if you look at the ancient context in the second and third centuries, this is kind of a a fight uh, sort of between different rival religions in the Roman Empire. But when, after the fourth century, when Christians become the established religion of the Roman Empire, and when they have at at their disposal the resources and the troops, really, to enforce their religion on others, this kind of language about the Jews who refuse to believe, who embrace error, all this nonsense takes on very, very dangerous and toxic overtones. And we all know the uh, results of that through Christian history have been Christians engaging in shameful and sinful and murderous acts against Jews based upon uh, prejudicial beliefs about Jews being Christ killers, rejecters of the truth, all that stuff. And some of that language uh, comes out of this whole idea of Jesus as the fulfiller of prophecy. Robert J. Miller is Rosenberger Professor of Religious Studies and Christian Thought at Juniata College in Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Jesus Seminar and Its Critics and Born Divine, The Births of Jesus and Other Sons of God. He's also the editor of The Complete Gospels, Fourth Edition. His latest book that we're going to discuss today is called Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. Robert J. Miller is on the phone. Welcome, Professor Miller, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. This book about uh, prophecy um, is is a huge deal within the Christian tradition, right? Um, we even, I mean, Christians kind of even change the order of the Hebrew Scriptures to make the Old Testament to be uh, end with the prophecy to predict, uh, you know, the John the Baptist and whatnot. So the prophecy is a big part of Christianity or has been. Is that correct? Right. I mean, from the very beginning, uh, the followers of Jesus were uh, basing a lot of their sense of who Jesus was based upon their belief that he came in fulfillment of of the Hebrew prophecies. So your book is uh, questioning whether or not that's a a good idea today. Yes, my my book concludes by urging Christians that it's time for us to uh, just give up this belief because it's, it's no longer tenable. Uh, it's no longer uh, legitimate in the in the face of what we know about how the prophets uh, taught, and it's simply no longer needed. It's not something Christians need to do anymore. They don't need to persuade themselves that uh, the the Jewish tradition 
uh, approves of Christian Christian belief. So why was that um, important uh, early on for Christianity to uh, understand that Jesus fulfilled prophecy? And, and did that mean the same thing to them that it might do to modern, say, Christian apologists today? Uh, well, first, let me take the uh, what I think is their understanding of it back in the early days of the Christian movement. I mean, the idea that, uh, or the belief that the life of Jesus was in fulfillment of the of the scriptures, was a, a very powerful way for them to overcome the enormous scandal of the way that Jesus had had died. I mean, he died in a horrifying and shameful way, which was not the way any any idea of a Messiah uh, was at at the time. All Jews who were looking for a Messiah, and not all of them were, but the ones who were, all of them believed that the Messiah would be uh, God's human instrument to bring about what they called the age to come, the time when uh, peace and justice would flourish, when uh, sin would die off, when evil would no longer be rampant upon the earth, and when God's will would be the way in which human beings lived. And since uh, that was the case, part of that was the belief that the Messiah would be a, a victorious person, someone who would institute God's, God's rule and oversee the establishment of God's government. Uh, no one foresaw that the Messiah would, would die a victim of, of someone else's violence. And so the fact that Jesus died that way and the fact that the world continued on the way it was without being a time of universal peace and prosperity and justice, uh, these were, for 99.9% .9 of Jews, absolute proof that Jesus could not have been the Messiah. And so his followers, uh, in order to establish their belief that he was the Messiah, um, re-read re uh, the Jewish prophets and found in those prophecies and in other parts of the Old Testament as well uh, a great deal of material that they could interpret in the light of Jesus, and to reinforce the belief that Jesus' uh, life and his death, actually, had been foretold by the prophets, although no one until now had seen that meaning in those texts. So how many uh, texts are there in the New Testament that uh, are state that they are prophetic fulfillment? Well, that's, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about the text where the author actually says, and this fulfills what the prophet says, and then quotes that prophet, I mean, there are dozens of those. But then there are many, many more which uh, seemingly make uh, allusions to or indirect references to Old Testament scriptures without actually pointing that out. So, I mean, if you count up all of those, uh, well, there'd be a great number, and I, I haven't done that uh, tabulation. Of course, you point out in the book um, that the Hebrew prophets uh, were not necessarily predicting a, a, even a future person or anything at all, uh, th that they had perhaps many different things in mind than the New Testament writers had when they wrote about the Old Testament prophets. Right. If, if we take the prophets like, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos, if we read them within the context of their own historical period. Uh, it's very clear that those prophets were speaking to people of their own time about issues which related to their own experience and their contemporary history. Uh, so they were urging the people who listened to them to uh, respond in a certain way, to repent of their wrongdoing, to follow the Torah, etc. When they spoke about the future, Almost all the time, they were speaking about the future of their own audience. In other words, warning that if they did not do what the prophet said, God would punish them, and if they did do what the prophet said, then God would reward them. Uh, so then the vast majority of writing in the prophetic text has to do either with the immediate situation of the prophet's own audience or, or their immediate future. If you... Think about it. I mean, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for a prophet to say, uh, I need you to repent and do this, and uh, oh, and by the way, seven or 800 years from now, certain things are going to happen. I mean, that just wouldn't have any motivational power for what people were uh, about at that, at that time. 
So let, let's take an example to kind of help explain this a little bit. Uh, Christmas time uh, and Isaiah and, and predicts the, uh, the young woman who will have a child or the virgin. Uh, talk about how that prophecy uh, was originally understood uh, by the perhaps the author and the immediate community in Isaiah's time, as well as how the Christians interpreted that. Okay, I um, mean, in Isaiah, it's in, it's in chapter 7 in Isaiah, the context for this prophetic announcement is that uh, the kingdom of Judah, which is, has its capital in Jerusalem, and the king who is on the throne then is called King Ahaz. He's a descendant of David. And at that time, there, are, there is an army marching into Judah, which has the goal of throwing Ahaz off of his throne and sort of taking away then the, the rule from the, from the house of, of David. And Ahaz is, of course, extremely concerned about this and is in the process of negotiating a treaty with the superpower of the, of the region, the kingdom or the empire of Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah tries to head off Ahaz's dip, diplomatic solution to his problem uh, I mean, Ahaz intends to make an alliance with the Assyrians and to tell them, I will be your compliant and submissive ally if you will send an army to protect my throne. And then uh, Isaiah challenges Ahaz not to, not to do that, but to trust God, to trust the God of Israel to do what that God of Israel had promised to David, which is to ensure that there would always be a member of David's descent sitting on the throne there in Jerusalem. And Isaiah challenges him to, to just simply let God hand, handle that. Uh, Ahaz doesn't want to do that, and he puts up this show of being a very pious person and says, oh, I cannot tempt uh, God. It's not up to me to, uh, you know, to press God's promise. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, in a sense, he says, just give, give me a break. I mean, you can fool humans, but you can't fool God. And just because you haven't then asked for a sign, God's going to give you one anyway. And here's where he says then that there's a young woman who is pregnant, and she will have a child. And uh, he's explained in the next couple of verses that that child is, before the child is old enough to know right, for, right from wrong, uh, the countries from whom these invaders invading armies come will be destroyed. So the, the birth of this boy and his uh, growing up in peaceful times is meant to be a sign to Ahaz that God is indeed uh, in faithful to his promise in protecting Ahaz's throne from uh, foreign disruption. Now clearly that is meant to be a sign to Ahaz. So it must be a boy born within his own immediate future. And since Isaiah refers to the young woman, he does not use the word virgin in the Hebrew language. Any translation which uses virgin is simply a mistranslation. Uh, and most modern well, versions of Isaiah correctly translate that to say the young woman. And since Isaiah refers to her as the young woman, he must be referring to somebody that uh, Ahaz knows. And the guest is this one of Ahaz's wives. Uh, and, and the interesting thing about this in the Hebrew language is that in the Hebrew language, you, you cannot tell simply from the word whether a verb is a present or a future verb. This might be strange to speakers of English, but the Hebrew language works its verbs quite differently. And so you have to look to context in every case to determine whether a verb is meant as a present event or one in the future. And since the pregnancy that Ahaz is uh, told about is one which will is supposed to calm his mind about this army which is in his country, uh, it's um, it's a pretty good bet, and that that the pregnancy is already un underway. And so the um, best way to translate that, I believe, is that, you know, the young woman is pregnant or is about to be pregnant immediately. So this is, this is not something which will happen eight centuries in the future when Jesus was born. That would be of no use at all to Ahaz. So the kind of so the point of the whole thing is that, hey, the time is short in which this good stuff is going to happen here. 
Exactly. It's meant to reassure him in the midst of a military crisis. Right. Now, later, I mean, the, one of the, the things that sort of puzzled uh, Jewish interpreters was that the boy, Ahaz was supposed to name the boy Emmanuel. And there is no son of Ahaz by that, by that name. In fact, the name is just, it's just hard to find anywhere. So this prophecy was always kind of a, of a puzzle. Now, Emmanuel simply means God is with us. And so it's probably meant to be a symbolic name, you know, not the actual name of anybody. And almost all Jewish interpreters and most and almost all modern uh, biblical scholars use the historical critical method, uh, pl place their bets that, that the boy Emmanuel was, in fact, the son of Ahaz named Hezekiah, who became king after, after him. Now, centuries and centuries later, I mean, about eight centuries later, uh, a Christian author, in this case Matthew, rereads re this prophecy and applies it to his own time or the time of Jesus and sees in it a fulfillment that Isaiah could have never uh, understood, that this is going to come true in a more, in a more powerful way in Jesus, who, who, who will be uh, true to the name that God is with us. So, how? Yeah, go ahead. Well, there's there's a bit of background here between the time of Isaiah, which is about 700 uh, BC, and the time of Matthew, which is the first century of the Common Era. I mean, there's eight centuries of Jewish tradition, and something very important and very pivotal has happened to the Jewish religion in that time. It has come into contact with Greek civilization when the armies of Alexander the Great swept through the Middle East in the fourth century before the Common Era. The Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, uh, even Greek uh, sports made enormous impact on all those cultures there. And all things Greek kind of became uh, the way to be modern for people in that part of the world because it was the, it was the language and culture of their conquerors. It was the language of this vast empire and anybody who wanted to be part of that modern world, and remember, everybody lives in the modern world. Everybody lives at a time when the world is as modern as it can be. So this was a way of sort of being part of modernity was to be uh, in contact with, with Greek culture and Greek literature, etc. What's important about all of this is that Greeks had a very different attitude towards prophecy than Jews did. Whereas Jews see prophets delivering God's message to God's people in very clear language because God wants them to do something very specific and the uh, prophets emphasize over and over again that their message should be clear and easy to understand. But in Greek culture, uh, their prophets who they call oracles, uh, their skill was in delivering uh, very obscure messages from the gods about the future. And so uh, in, the, in the Greek mind, uh, the prophecies were not meant to be intelligible all the time. In fact, they seldom were. And they were, they were thought to contain uh, secret and deep meanings that no one could really know until these predictions came true, sometimes at a much later date, and oftentimes in ways that no one could foresee. Now, this idea of prophecy became a very important and attractive one to Jewish thinkers. Because look at what it let them it let them do. Their religion, which considered against the the uh, Greek religion and modern things, seems very old-fashioned, seems very uh, ancient. Uh, all of a sudden, now with this new understanding of prophecy available from Greek culture, Jewish thinkers who are are interested in uh, sort of thinking along these lines say, "Look, we have hundreds of pages of prophecy." And if we think of them not as Isaiah speaking to Isaiah's own people, but Isaiah as a mouthpiece for God, delivering messages about the future which are not easy to understand, what we have now is a book of prophecies, hundreds of them, in writing, which was really a big deal in the ancient world, that could have application to the present or to our future, not simply to our past. And so it became a way in which many Jewish thinkers began to promote looking back on their prophets, which were by that time old, 
I mean, by the third, second, third century BCE, Isaiah was already four or five hundred years in the past. So it was a way in which these old texts could somehow be looked at to find new meaning. And Matthew and the other New Testament writers, who all of whom are influenced by this blend of Jewish and Greek ways of thinking, harness this way of looking at the Hebrew prophets as a sort of a uh, resource for rereading and finding in them meanings which are coming true in their own experience. So they could look back at these old texts and uh, and say that, well, they, they had meanings in them that were not known at that time, that right. are, are not, not now God is revealing, and they can be totally different, and that's okay. So that's kind of how Matthew kind of gets away with it, so to speak. Well, I don't think he thought of himself as getting away with anything. He was he was using, at the time, the way in which uh, Jewish in- intellectuals across the board looked at their, at their ancient prophecies. He was playing by the rules of the game. I mean, to put it in a little trivial way, he was, he was using prophecies the way Jewish authors were using them at the time. So other Jews might disagree with him about Jesus fulfilling these prophecies, but they wouldn't have been shocked that he was taking old prophecies and applying them to uh, contemporary scenes. So how did they um, uh, kind of do a quality analysis of each other's predictions? I mean, that's pretty open-ended in terms of creativity, isn't it? Well, it's very open-ended, and there's there's no easy way to, uh, no objective way, for example, I mean, by which one could dispute these things. And someone could say, well, I don't find that very uh, persuasive. But if you believed that God had revealed to you or to your community or inspired you to understand these prophecies in a certain way, uh, it doesn't really matter what someone else says about them if you believe that you are inspired to find these new meanings in them. Now, one of the ways we can using our modern standards of biblical studies, one of the ways we can check on these is to examine, for example, uh, how these prophecies are quoted out of context. Because in context, they oftentimes just simply cannot mean what the New Testament says they mean. In your book, you talk about the different uh, ways in which uh, prophecy is used. Uh, sometimes yes. it's uh, quoted, uh, like you say, quoting prophecy out of context. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, let me give a, a pretty a pretty clear example. Again, this comes from the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel, when uh, the evil King Herod wants to kill Jesus but doesn't quite know which baby Jesus is, as we know, he sends out his soldiers to commit this horrifying atrocity, to kill all the baby boys under a certain age in the region where Jesus was supposed to be born. In the story, uh, Joseph gets a, a vision or a dream from an angel warning him to flee and go to Egypt to escape this uh, Herod's plot. And so as they leave for Egypt, Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill the prophecy, quote, I called my son out of Egypt. Now that comes from the prophet Hosea. And let me read you the, uh, that little sentence within Hosea's own context. And here's what Hosea says. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I called my son out of Egypt. The more I called to them, the more they went away from me, and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Now that's Hosea's own words. And it's very clear in that context that when Hosea says, when Israel was a son, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt, that my son out of Egypt refers not to a specific human being, but to the nation of Israel. And it refers to the time when uh, God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And Hosea goes on to bemoan the fact that even though God had done this for them, they kept worshiping false gods. Now, clearly, if you take that sentence that Matthew quotes within its context, it cannot refer 
to Jesus. It can't refer to any specific person. It refers quite specifically, as Hosea explicitly points out, it refers to the people of Israel. So what Matthew does is he snips out of that statement the one sentence out of its context, which out of context could be taken to refer to an individual, to my son, that is for him, Jesus. But in his context, it's perfectly clear that Hosea had no such meaning in mind at all. And and there's kind of another way within that same story of really that's kind of a a, a, a retelling of the Moses story of right. the, the birth I mean, of Jesus of, in Matthew. Right. Part of part of what Matthew is doing in these Christmas stories is uh, showing how Jesus in his infancy sort of re, re relives some of the major events of the history of his own people, and part of that then is to set him up, to, to set the scene for Matthew's uh, message that Jesus is a new Moses. Now, sure. this, yeah, so this works um, because Matthew already believes it, and the people he's writing for, I guess he presumes they already believe it, right? So it's, it's belief first. It doesn't necessarily convince anybody who doesn't believe it, or does it? Uh, no, I mean, it's very clear that uh, these uh, claims that Jesus fulfills prophecy uh, would not be persuasive to anybody unless they were already believers in, in, in Jesus. Because anyone who knew the prophecy from the book of Hosea would clearly see that Matthew was attaching, it, uh, attaching, it, attaching to it a meaning that simply didn't make any sense. So uh, the Gospels really are not written to persuade people to convert to belief in Jesus. They're written to reassure people who already believe that they have every right to their belief. And in a, in a way, the Gospel stories themselves make that quite clear. Because, for instance, in the Gospel of John, uh, there are stories there where Jesus fulfills a prophecy, and John sort of stops the story to remind the reader that Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. But then John tells us that his followers at the time had no idea that he was fulfilling a prophecy. And it wasn't until after he died and rose from the dead that they thought back to this event and they saw in it a fulfillment of prophecy. So this is John's very clear, I think, admission that the belief that Jesus has fulfilled prophecy is something that uh, would occur to people who already believed that he had been raised from the dead. And so that gave them then the impetus to go back and look for places in the uh, Old Testament that they believed that Jesus had fulfilled. I'm speaking with Robert J. Miller, author of Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. We continue after the break. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Robert J. Miller. We're discussing his book, Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. And so what that does for John and John's community, and perhaps what it does today, is that it kind of just reassures people that they're on the right track. Yes, and, and it's very important that we understand that when John, for instance, is writing towards the end of the first century, the believers in Jesus are a very tiny sect within Judaism, and they're struggling for their own religious legitimacy because they are not being accepted by the Jewish leadership of the time. They're not persuading anybody uh, except, the, except themselves. And the Jewish leadership is taking steps to uh, 
sort of throw them out of the Jewish community. And this is, this is a very distressing and troubling occurrence to uh, the audience that John is writing for. And so John's repeated insistence that Jesus not only is the Son of God, but that he fulfills these prophecies is his way of helping his people stand firm in their faith and be reassured that uh, the history of Israel has been leading up to them and to Jesus and to their belief in him as, as the one who was promised to come. So this has a very powerful reassuring effect in the ancient world that is quite uh, out of context in the modern world because I simply don't know of any Christians anywhere who are in danger of believing that their faith is inauthentic because Jews don't approve of it. That's simply not a context anymore that makes any sense at all. And so the, the need to be constantly reassuring ourselves that Jesus fulfills these prophecies uh, simply doesn't have the same urgency that it did in the, in the first century when the Gospels were written. I'm speaking with Robert J. Miller. He's the author of Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. And that last point, I think, is important because there has been a, quite a legacy of uh, anti-Semitism within this uh, prophetic uh, idea of Jesus fulfilling prophecy from uh, using that as an argument. Yes, that's, uh, that's really sort of the uh, sad side of this whole thing, is that uh, we, we do find in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles uh, and in Christian writers, you know, from the early centuries, very clear and sometimes very ugly statements about Jews who don't believe in Jesus, who refuse to see the truth that he fulfills these prophecies, etc., and uh, sort of calling down the, the anger of God on 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 the Jews who uh, persist in what Christians call their willful unbelief. Um, and this this is uh, quite uh, in I mean in, if you look at the ancient context in the second and third centuries this is kind of an, a fight uh, sort of between different rival religions in the Roman Empire. But when after the fourth century, when Christians become the established religion of the Roman Empire, and when they have at, the, at their disposal the resources and the troops really to enforce their religion on others, this kind of language about the Jews who refuse to believe, who embrace error, all this nonsense, uh, takes on very, very dangerous and toxic overtones. And we all know the uh, results of that through Christian history have been Christians engaging in shameful and sinful and murderous acts against Jews based upon uh, prejud prejudicial beliefs about Jews being Christ killers, rejectors of the truth, all that stuff. And some of that language uh, comes out of this whole idea of Jesus as the fulfiller of prophecy. One of the humorous ones I find is the one that's uh, from Matthew's Gospel that's used on Palm Sunday in which uh, Matthew has Jesus ride two animals because of the parallelism in, in the Hebrew poetry. Explain how Matthew didn't get that and wh why. It's very puzzling uh, because uh, Matthew, as he reads the story, which he sees in Mark's gospel, and there's a whole theory here among scholars is that Matthew's using Mark's gospel as the basis for his narrative anyway about Jesus. Uh, Matthew sees in that story a fulfillment of prophecy that Mark doesn't see. And he sees him fulfilling this uh, prophecy about um, uh, you know, the Lord will come to you uh, humble and riding on, on, a, on a donkey, on the, on the colt of a donkey. And that's from the prophet Zechariah. I was paraphrasing. I wasn't reading a, a strict quotation. And since Zechariah seems to mention two animals, one you know, like an adult mother and then the foal of that animal, uh, Matthew uh, has this very strange and frankly kind of silly story about Jesus sitting, he says, on them, on two animals, and riding them into Jerusalem in absolute literal fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, the trouble is, in many English Bibles, you will not see this translated correctly, because the translators don't render those plural pronouns rightly. When they say that Jesus in the, in the Greek, Matthew says, Jesus sat on them, meaning the two animals you'll often see that sort of obscured in English 
translations, at least in some of them. And you you are not you won't see how odd this sort of scene is, but it does show the enormous extent to which Matthew was prepared to go to portray Jesus as you know a down to the detail fulfiller of uh, prophecy. And by the way, the title of my book is Helping Jesus Fulfill a Prophecy, and the helping in the title refers to the different ways in which Christian authors help Jesus fulfill prophecy by uh, quoting prophecy out of context, uh, at times actually rewriting prophecy, changing the words of it so that they can refer to Jesus. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, give an example of that one. Give an example okay. of how they actually changed it. All right, I'll, I'll give a, a simple one. We go back to the story of the virgin shall be with a, a child, uh, back from Isaiah there. And, and, and in Isaiah's words, Isaiah tells Ahaz, you know, the young woman is pregnant and will have a child and give birth, and you will name him Emmanuel. Now, when we read that in Matthew's Gospel, it's the angel speaking to uh, Joseph about the birth of this child, about whom he's very puzzled. And the angel tells Joseph quite directly, you will name him Jesus, not Emmanuel, uh, so that when Matthew then quotes the prophecy, he knows he can't have, he knows he can't quote Matthew's word straight that says, you will name him, because in fact, Joseph does not name Jesus Emmanuel, he names him Jesus. And so Matthew then changes this, not to you will name him, to they will name him Emmanuel, which uh, Matthew, I'm pretty sure, sees as a, as a, as a future telling of how Christians will refer to Jesus as God among us, which is what the word Emmanuel means. So it may look like a slight change, changing the you will name to they will name, but it shows us how carefully Matthew is reading and how he's willing at times to uh, rewrite the prophecy to make it more carefully fit um, the uh, words, uh, I mean, the, the story in the gospel. Let me give another one here that's that's uh, even easier, perhaps, to see, and one that isn't quite so loaded up with uh, things about uh, Jesus. And it comes from 2 Corinthians, in which Paul is referring to believers as those who belong to God. And he says that this fulfills the prophecy uh, in which, quote, God said, quote, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. Well, in its Old Testament context, this is part of a prophecy that the prophet Nathan gives to David concerning David's son Solomon. And as Nathan relates the prophecy, he says, quote, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So this is a clear reference to David's son, Solomon. God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Well, when Paul quotes that, he doesn't have it quoted as, I will be a father to him, to a single person, but he uses the plural you. In the Greek language, uh, the word you in the plural is a different word than the word you in singular, unlike English. And so when Paul writes that, he says, I will be a father to you, plural, and you, plural, will be sons and daughters to me. And so uh, to fill this out, Matthew, not, I mean, Paul, not only changes the to him, to, to you, he also changes he will be a son to me, to they, he will be sons and daughters to me. So what Paul has done is take a reference which is clearly intended individually for one person, that is Solomon, the son of David, and he expands it to apply to all Christians, but to do that, he has to rewrite it. So this is one of the ways in which uh, Christian authors helped Jesus fulfill prophecy, is that they tailor or edit and sometimes simply rewrite the prophecy to make it fit the situation to which they think it, to which they think it belongs. Did they, did uh, different authors, uh, is there any evidence at all of different authors kind of debating each other? Uh, in terms of how prophecies um, about Jesus or anything worked? I mean, were there uh, people who argued against, for example, a, a use of that or, or said, hey, wait, that, that's, uh, no, you can't do that, Paul? Uh, not, not to my knowledge within uh, the 
the Christian community in the first century. In the, in the second century, we have lots of evidence that uh, Jewish scholars were, were uh, criticizing or debating Christian scholars about the use of uh, Hebrew prophecy, but that, that would be a later development. Yeah, and of course, also you mentioned that there are sometimes stories created from prophecies, thinking of uh, the execution of Jesus himself and how many kind of lines are lifted, even from the Psalms, which aren't necessarily, you would think of as prophetic books, but like Psalm 22 and, and, and whatnot. Can you talk about how that happens? Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of that. Um, in, in three of the Gospels, in the, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after Jesus is crucified, all three of them state that the soldiers who did this terrible thing, they, since Jesus was crucified naked, they had his clothes and they divided them up among them. And they cast lots. They did something like toss dice to see, you know, who would get what. So all three of them re- re- report that. Now, when John tells the story, he adds a detail not found in the synoptics. And it tells us that, I'll just read it, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one share for each soldier. But his shirt was woven continuously without a seam, and so they said to each other, let's not tear it, let's toss to see who gets it. And then John says, this happens that the scripture would be fulfilled that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. What John has done is emphasize this and. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And so John has to depict two separate divisions of the clothing, one different parts given to soldiers, and one then they gamble for uh, this piece that they don't want to divide up. Now, this is not a terribly important uh, story. It, It doesn't affect any Christian doctrine or anything, but it does show us that John is revising his story. He's adding details not found in any other account in order to uh, make clear that a scripture is being fulfilled. And so since he knew the scripture before he wrote the story, it's pretty clear that John is taking his cues from the scripture. And so I argue in my book, and I'm not alone, this is a very common uh, understanding among historical critical scholars, is that the prophecies themselves have been used as the raw material for the writing of some of these stories. In fact, one might say even the synoptic gospel account of that has a lot of details from that psalm. Even Jesus yes. saying, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So sometimes right. the prophecy isn't necessarily explicit. Here's the prophecy. It, it's it's kind of creating a narrative, and the, and, and the prophecy or, or the scripture fulfillment is kind of um, assumed. In many cases, that's true. In some cases, it's hard to tell exactly whether or not that's happening, but in some cases, there clearly is an indirect reference to a uh, some sort of scriptural text, uh, either a prophecy or a psalm or some something else. My guest is Robert Miller. He's the uh, Robert J. Miller is the author of Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy. You've mentioned a couple of times historical critical scholarship and how that's uh, obviously different from many people kind of believing the Bible is true or whatnot. And and you're very clear in your book that you're not debunking the fact that people might think that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. You're talking specifically about the argument against Jesus fulfilling prophecy as an historical fact. Right. I think it's it's it may not seem uh, too different at first sight, but I want us to think carefully about this because it really is a quite different thing for me to say I believe that Jesus fulfills prophecy versus Jesus fulfills prophecy and here's the evidence and proof for how that happened. If I say I believe it, what I'm doing is I'm giving a testimony to my commitment to a certain way of understanding Jesus and his relationship to Scripture. If I give an argument, what I'm in fact saying is that anybody who's smart enough to know all the evidence and can has a functioning logical system in their head will draw the same conclusion that I do. So belief, I can say, well, I believe this, and other people don't believe it, and 
that's not something I need to uh, obsess about or worry about. If I say, here's an argument for why Jesus fulfills prophecy, then, of course, uh, my sense is that anybody who is uh, informed and smart enough to reason the way I do is going to draw the same conclusion. And so I, I think the, the problems and the poison comes in the argument from prophecy, not in the belief from prophecy. I think it's totally legitimate for a follower of Jesus at any time in history or today to say something like this, to say that because of my belief in Jesus, I'm able to read certain parts of the Old Testament and to see in them a, a, a hidden and deeper dimension of truth than is otherwise apparent in those stories. That's a declaration of one's faith, and I think has to be met with uh, respect. But if someone says Jesus really is the one prophesied by Scripture, and here's the evidence for it, then one expects the person you're talking to to agree with you. And if you don't, your conclusion is simply that they are wrong. And that's, I guess, an innocent enough debate to have but given the, the horrific uh, results of this kind of thinking throughout Christian history for Jewish people, I think it really is time for Christians just to give up the argument from prophecy. And I think we're still entitled to our belief, but the argument is the one that I think that causes all the trouble. And that's really the, the basis on which I am uh, written this book to analyze how the argument from prophecy uh, falls short time and time and time again when judged against simple things like looking these things up in context or just comparing what the Old Testament actually says to the sometimes different ways in which the Old Testament prophecy is quoted or misquoted in the New Testament. And the argument from prophecy is used quite commonly. Uh, you really start off your book uh, with a passage from the evangelist or the minister Rick Warren uh, talking about how so many beliefs have been fulfilled, and, and so that proves that uh, <laughs> the Bible is true, not necessarily the Jesus fulfilled prophecy, which is kind of an interesting argument that he made. But this is quite common um, in terms of perhaps what we might say, what, a, a non-critical study of the Bible. Sure. I mean, I, I just chose Rick Warren because he's famous, but I mean, there are thousands of, of examples of this kind of, of proclamation. Just simply put in fulfillment of prophecy into your search engine, into Google, and you will see numerous sites that have hundreds and hundreds of prophecies lined up with, you know, their supposed fulfillments in, uh, in Jesus. So this is still for, for some Christians. I don't know for how many, certainly for a lot. Uh, I doubt for a, a majority, because most Christians don't, you know, go to this kind of effort, but it certainly it's still a very, very popular and very living uh, way of thinking about Jesus today. Not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but that you can prove that from uh, the way in which uh, the Bible uh, says it's fulfilled. And what I do, I challenge people to sort of think about that from a critical thinking perspective, is that if you say... Uh, the Old Testament says this, and Jesus fulfills it, and we know he fulfilled it because the New Testament said he did, you're already presupposing that the New Testament is telling you the truth about what Jesus said and did as a fulfillment of prophecy. So if you already believe that what the New Testament says, uh, why the need to prove anything? <laughs> and if you don't believe what the New Testament says, then the argument from prophecy is going to land like a big thud. It's not going to go any, anywhere. So it's, it's an example of what uh, critical thinkers call circular reasoning, in which you assume the truth of the thing you want to prove as part of the argument, you know, that the thing you want to prove is true. You, all you've done really is simply state your initial belief in a different way. You haven't really given any independent support for that for that belief. What about, um, say, modern theologians that are, are not necessarily uh, doing that, but, but the, suddenly they're confronted with all of these doctrines, let's say virgin birth and, and whatnot, and uh, historical critical study has, you know, has shown, hey, there are different, for example, the prophecy from Isaiah uh, isn't about that a virgin at all, and, and so the doctrines themselves come from faulty 
what we might say from our point of view, historical critical stuff that doesn't hold up. Uh, do you have you? So my question is, what about uh, kind of mainstream theologians? How, how will your book kind of affect that? Well, I'm, 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 I'm eager to find out. Uh, there is a chapter in my book which analyzes how some modern biblical scholars who practice the historical critical method and who are faithful to the teachings of their denomination, how they try to uh, have it both ways in effect, right? To say that the prophets were speaking to the people of their own time, and yet there's this other sort of hidden, uh, deeper, second meaning uh, and I, I analyzed very carefully their attempts to what I call square the circle on this and show how those attempts just fall apart. They simply don't work. Uh, so uh, it is a very difficult problem for contemporary theologians who, are, 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 uh, who understand and uh, practice the historical critical method of biblical interpretation to justify the Christian tradition's use of these of these prophecies. And so if you're interested enough to get my book, you'll see a whole chapter devoted to analyzing that. Robert J. Miller, Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy, is the book. And and it may be a challenge also to regular, everyday practicing Christians who like to go to Christmas Eve services and hear the prophet twas foretold it and sing these kinds of songs. It kind of, uh, uh, there's an aspect in which uh, faith and practice might be challenged, well, for the better. I mean, I... I, I, I hope so, because the, the thing that I'm quite keen to point out in this book is that the argument, again, not the belief, but the argument that Jesus fulfills prophecy, it's from its beginning an anti-Jewish thing. And Christianity has had enough of anti-Judaism. I mean, it has, it has poisoned our history, and, uh, you know, it, Thankfully, it has subsided. It hasn't gone away, but it has subsided much in the last 50 years. But uh, we just simply, as Christians, do not need to have anti-Jewish elements anymore uh, central to our, our affirmations about Jesus. That, that time has just passed, and yeah, it, it's just best left in the, in, in the past that we regret. So that's part of the moral urgency with which I urge uh, Christians who are interested in these things about biblical interpretation to think very carefully and very critically about this whole this whole argument that Jesus fulfills prophecy. My guest on Progressive Spirit has been Robert J. Miller. His book is Helping Jesus Fulfill Prophecy, a great book to pick up for study. Robert, uh, thank you so much for being with me. You're most welcome, John. been listening to progressive spirit progressivespirit.net is my website catch progressive spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast from the studios of kboo in portland oregon i'm john shock be well